sinful worldviews uh, always tempt you to do uh, sinful things. That's why you have to be very careful what you read, what you watch, who you listen to. Um, uh, there's uh, a typical worldview that, that I grew up with, which is still prevalent today and has been around for who knows how long. Um, we called it, when I was younger, the party spirit. Uh, basically living for the weekend, having a good time. All my friends did it. Uh, and, you know, you're living for the next Friday when you get drunk and drink too much. And I mean, I had tons of friends like this. Um, peer pressure pushes you into this. And I've seen it happen to many of my friends. When Liz and I went to seminary in Dallas, Texas, uh, back in uh, 1981, uh, she took a job in a dental office. That's what she uh, did as, for a living. Uh, she ran into a young lady in the office. Uh, we'll call her name uh, Carly. Uh, and uh, this particular young lady had just rotated off the Dallas Cowboy cheerleading squad. Uh, she was very pretty, uh, very uh, outgoing, uh, made friends with everybody. And she and Liz just hit it, hit it off, and they became really good friends. Um, so I got to know her very well and her boyfriend. Uh, they were living together at the time. Uh, and I was new to Texas and, you know, I never, never met a Dallas Cowboy cheerleader. So this was like, wow, this is interesting. Um, and so we got to know them, hung out with them, did vacation with them and stuff, uh, at different times. Uh, but I always looked upon her as a non-Christian, uh, just by her lifestyle, the, the party lifestyle, because that's what she and her boyfriend did frequently. They just lived for the next you know, time to, you know, to get drunk and, and party. Uh, so I, I would always approach them as, 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 as a non-Christian uh, couple, as it were. So one day she was sitting on my uh, couch in our, in our apartment and uh, Liz was off doing something and, uh, and she, she told me, she said, hey, uh, can, I, can I talk to you about my life? And I said, well, like, sure. And, you know, she goes, my life is messed up. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah it is messed up. And uh, sometimes counseling is really simple. It's like, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and uh, she said, well, she said, uh, it hasn't always been that way. She said, when I was uh, in my young teenage years, I, I went to a church camp. I trusted Christ as my Savior. I walked with him for many years, was a great witness for him. Uh, she said, it wasn't until I got in the Dow Dallas Cowboy cheerleading squad that my life went south. She said, the pressure, you know, to conform to the worldly things that they do, she was just too great for me. And so to be included, I compromised a lot of things. And so... Uh, she said, I feel really bad about the things that I do, uh, and I know that I'm not living the way that God would want me to. Um, all of a sudden, I had an aha moment sitting there with her, and I thought to myself, I'm, I've been talking to her like she's a non-Christian, when this is a sister in Christ who has willfully walked away from the intimacy of her faith, and what does she need? Uh, she needs a heavy dose of 1 John 1, 9. Remember? And you thought I forgot about my sermon passage. Um, <laughs> guys meandering. No. Uh, she needed to confess her sin to Christ. And so she did, uh, right there on that couch, her waywardness, her party spirit. And when she left that uh, night, she had just like a spring in her step. She was, you could just see the burden of her sin was lifted and she was free uh, to go on and, and live the way that she wanted, wanted to. Um, can a Christian do that? Yeah, unfortunately they can. Um, they can uh, give in to peer pressure, uh, they can adopt a, a worldview that's contradictory to the faith, uh, and they can live uh, in a godless way. That's why you have all the commands in the New Testament, uh, don't do this, because you can choose to do those things. So I would just uh, talk to you today to say, uh, are you Carly? Or we could switch it if you're a guy and call you Carl, uh, you know, but is that you? And if your happen name happens to be Carl, I apologize, I didn't call your wife or anything. Um, but, it, but is that you? I mean, have you... Have you let peer pressure, false worldviews to tarnish your faith and, and pull the joy out of your faith? 
Uh, and if that's you, uh, John has a, a great word for you today in First uh, John chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, really just this short little section, verses 12 to 17, where he's going to give you what I, what I call God's gracious gifts because he wants you to get back into fellowship with him. If you have a daughter or a son who drifts away from your family, making bad moral decisions as a Christian, what do you want? You, you want them to come back to the fold. You want them to come back to the family to have that intimacy that you once, once had. And God's the same way. He wants to have that intimate relationship. So he's going to give us three things here uh, the, I call them three gifts to focus on. Uh, if you are Carly or Carl, uh, how do I get back from whence I came? Well, uh, number one, gift number one is uh, you need to realize the gift of forgiveness because your sin has tarnished your ability to understand what's happened for you. So look at verse 12. John says to the Christians that he's writing to in the seven churches in Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, he says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are what? Forgiven. Forgiven. What's the devil tell you? You're not forgiven. Are you kidding? Look at your life. Uh, no, he says your sins are forgiven. Plural sins. Uh, your sins are forgiven. Uh, why were they forgiven? Well, for his namesake. This is powerful. Uh, when, you, when you look at this, uh, first of all, he, he says, I'm writing to you little children. He's speaking to the Christians in these churches. Because remember, he's 90 plus years old. So he has the right to call everybody else that's 89, 79, 69. <laughs> to him, they are nothing but little children, because they truly are. Um, I went to a, uh, the Dodger game Monday night, by the way. Praise God. Uh, they won 10 to 1. Uh, but um, it was an exciting experience. Uh, but as I was watching the players, because we had some really good seats, and you could see the faces of the players, I thought to myself, they look like kids with bats. You know, remember when you're younger and you're thinking, man, they look like grown men. And then when does that flip? I don't know, 60 or something, you know, when they all start looking, see police officers, they start, they gave them a weapon. I mean, it's scary. So back to my sermon, I'm meandering. So I'm writing to you little children. So he could totally call them little children. Uh, but, but why did he write? So did he write, as some say, uh, that he's going to give uh, uh, these churches proofs of salvation? No, that's not why he's writing. Uh, he's writing, as he stresses in verses one, uh, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 to 4, he's writing to, to take, take these Christians in these churches in Asia Minor who've been infiltrated by Gnostic teaching, um, to pull them away from Gnostic teaching, wrong thinking, erroneous worldview, uh, which has tarnished their faith and split many churches. He wants to get them back into their intimate walk with Christ. Why? Because false teaching, erroneous worldviews lead you to sinful thinking and sin sinful living. Destroy these churches. So he's not talking about how you know you're saved. He's talking about, now, how do you have a fellowship with Christ that's rich? Uh, the Gnostics, as we know, uh, Gnosis, the Greek word, uh, means knowledge. Uh, and they were the, the intelligentsia. They were the academia types of the church. They were the people in the know. And if you believed in their system, then you, then you were saved. Uh, they were the ones that uh, downplayed the external body and up played the internal body. So what mattered was what went on in the internal you. What you did with your body didn't matter, which led to antinomianism or lawlessness. Because if I'm not responsible before God what my body does, then, hey, party on. Because what matters is just the inner man. That was kind of that mindset. And so their thinking was destroying these churches. But John comes along and says to them, who are wondering if they're saved or not, because the Gnostics are telling them, if you don't believe like we do, then you don't really know God. Well, John comes along and says, oh, no, you need to remember, I, as your spiritual father, are telling you that your sins are what? Forgiven. 
forgiven. A very key word in the passage, it's a theomy in Greek. A theomy means to release somebody from a, from a financial obligation. Uh, I, I have an uncle, uh, he's now with the Lord. God blessed him financially in California. He was very wealthy. Uh, and uh, he bought me several cars as I grew up because he had the money to do it. And one of the cars, he bought me a, a brand new Camaro uh, off the showroom floor when I was 19. Uh, yeah, that was cool. <laughs> I went from no car to a major car. Uh, but anyway, that's, I don't want to talk about that. That's, that's, a whole, that's another story. So, so anyway, so I, when I outgrew the Camaro because I got married, I had kids, and all the you know, car seats won't fit in the car, the Camaro's small, he came to me when I was broke uh, as a young pastor, and he said, uh, you need another car. I'm like, I can't afford another car. He goes, I can help you. Uh, and so he, he, he bought us another car that I could not afford. Uh, and he said, well, you can make small payments to me. I don't, I don't care. And uh, so, so I was making small payments. Uh, and I was calculating out as I was making these on an amortization guide thinking, I will owe him money till I die, <laughs> you know? So one day he called me, and my uncle was from Barcelona, Spain, that area. And he called me up, Antonio Sanchez. Calls me up and says, hey, Martin. Uh, he called me Joven for young man. I called him Viejo for an old man, <laughs> if you know Spanish. You know Spanish? Comprende? Yeah, so, uh, so he called me up and he goes, hey, I got a proposition. I goes, yeah, what, what, you know, hey, que paso, you know? And um, this is my Hispanic section right here, so I can tell. So, um, so I said, yeah, what's up? And he said, uh, I just, I just want to let you know, uh, I'm going to forgive that debt. I'm like, hold the phone. You bought me a Camaro, cool. Just wrote a check out for it. I drove it off the lot. And then you, you bought me this huge Caprice Classic, remember four doors? The entire family line can fit in here. Yeah, that was a really cool car, but I'm like, man, I, Uncle Tony, I mean, I, what, do I, what do I tell you? And he goes, I, I, he said, I can, I can afford it, and uh, that's what I want to do. And so he forgave my debt. He did an me thing to me. The Greek thing? I love that word. me. It means you, somebody's got a debt they can't pay, and you forgive it. I mean, talk about the Christian thing to do. And so he looked at the fact that he had way more than we could ever afford, uh, and it meant nothing to him. Uh, and we were living on $30,000 a year, raising two kids. I mean, we, we didn't have it hardly much. So that's what that is. It's to forgive a debt that a person can't pay. So what did God do when you came to him in faith? What did he do? He took a debt you could not repay, and he forgave it through the work of Christ on the cross. That's amazing. What does the devil want? The devil doesn't want you to remember that. The devil wants to come through false thinking and sinful living that you get involved in, and like this, uh, it will dawn on you that well, I, I'm, maybe I'm not really saved. I mean, look at my lifestyle, and you probably heard his raspy voice or two whispering in your ear, right? Yeah, look at your life. You're a loser. You're going nowhere. Look what you, look at you constantly compromise. I've got you into this addiction. You can't break it. I mean, all the stuff that he does. But John comes along and says, um, "No, I'm a, as your spiritual father. I want to tell you that you are you are forgiven. You're forgiven." I'm re God released you from a debt. You're his child. The parable of the unforgiving debtor in um, Matthew 18 is a very interesting story. Uh, Jesus tells this story about a king uh, who goes away. The king is really him in the parable. Uh, and he comes back to settle debts. That's him coming back and returning. Because one day we have to answer to God uh, for what we have done in this life. Uh, and he comes to the one servant and he asks for his money back. And if you calculate the money uh, in our vernacular, he's, he's asking for several million dollars back. The servant absolutely doesn't have it. So he goes apoplectic. You know what the term means? Nobody? Crazy. Psycho. Bonkers. Whatever. I think bonkers is a really educated term. He goes nuts. 
He doesn't have the several million dollars. So he falls down before the king, Jesus, and he begs and he begs for mercy. And so uh, it says in verse 27 of Matthew 18, and the Lord of that slave felt compassion on him and released him and forgave him the debt. He did the afiami, the same word here, afiami. He released it. The guy could not pay it back. He forgave him. Now this is, keep on reading the passage. This is where he gets into the, how often should you forgive somebody? Well, 70 times seven. So at 490 times, then you're done. Now I don't have to forgive you anymore. Is that... No, no. Jesus is saying to infinity and beyond <laughs> to tap into our culture. But anyway, so the, the, the last thing the devil wants you to remember is that you are a forgiven person because he wants to bring condemnation to you and, and, and drill you down into the ground. Now, that's a little different than conviction. Conviction is the Holy Spirit coming and telling you, you shouldn't be with them. You shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be... He, he comes and convicts you of sin. Now, the devil comes along and condemns you. It's totally different. What should you do to get back to God? What did uh, Carly need to do? She needed to, she needed to get back to that intimacy with Christ to understand as a, as a daughter of Christ, you're forgiven. Number two, gift number two, the gift of knowledge. This is a very interesting little section where he kind of repeats him, himself. Remember how old is he? 90. Can you repeat yourself after 90? You can probably repeat yourself after 50. Uh, notice what he says. He says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I am writing to you, young man, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. And didn't you just say that? Yeah, I did. But he's over 90. He can say it twice. <laughs> right? Uh, I have written to you, young man, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Whoa. Wow, what in the world is he talking about? So before we get into exactly what he's talking about knowledge-wise here, we need to ascertain who exactly is he talking to? Uh, because there are those who believe that what you have here is a, a statement of spiritual gradation, that he goes from one level of spirituality to another and then to the top level. And so the way they divide this is, I'm out of this viewpoint, by the way, I'm just presenting it. Um, so the way that they, those people that hold this position view this is the, the little children are new Christians, New in the faith, etc. Uh, the young men, the teenagers, uh, those are the people who have been believers for, for quite a while, tons of spiritual energy, and, and they're, they're like in the middle of their Christian walk. Uh, and the fathers, those are the ones who are spiritually mature. That's the viewpoint. Uh, I don't hold that viewpoint, and I'll tell you why. Three reasons why I don't hold that viewpoint. I think it, they all refer to a Christian, no matter what stage you're at. Uh, here's why. Number one, uh, if John spoke in the developmental stages, why did he invert fathers and young men? Because if you're thinking logically, you would have little children, then young men, then fathers. But he inverts the two. Why? Because he's not following a developmental stage. Number two, uh, all throughout the book, he calls these believers little children. All throughout the book. Chapter 2, verse 1, verse 28, chapter 3, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 5, verse 21. So all throughout the book is a beautiful thread where he calls all of the Christians little children. So he's not talking about stages because he sees them all the same. Third reason is you, it, twice he says here that uh, they, the, these young men were able to overcome the, the, what the devil was doing in their lives. You mean to tell me that only young people in their walk with God, who've walked with God like in their teenage years, as it were, spiritually speaking, they're the only ones who can overcome the devil? You mean to tell me that a 75-year-old saint who struggles with a certain sin can't get victory? No, I wouldn't say that at all. Uh, any saint can get victory at whatever developmental stage you're at. So therefore, I don't divide it between those. 
those quadrants. It, they're all referencing believers. Now that we have that cleared up, let's look at what he said. He's writing to Christians, and he says, I'm writing to you because you know him. Uh, know who? Well, know him. You have two options. It's either God, uh, the Father, or the Son. I think he's talking about the Son because he's talking about a relationship with Jesus. And so he's talking about uh, that you possess knowledge of God. And he keeps using the, co the concept here. He uses it twice. That you've known him who was from the beginning. So God gives you knowledge as a Christian that sin causes you not to remember that special knowledge that you've been given. Two kinds of knowledge. Number one, you have knowledge of the person of Christ. Knowledge of the person of Christ. So he says, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him. Put the word Jesus in there. Who has been from the beginning. He's going to say that twice because he says it again in verse 14. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. He's being redundant on purpose. He wants you to remember, because you have forgotten, who it is that you know and the ramifications of that special knowledge. So he's saying Jesus is the one who is from the beginning. He's not talking about the beginning of your faith. He's talking about the essence of who he is. In John chapter 8, verse 58, when the Pharisees pressed him and wanted to know who he was, he was extremely clear on who he was. Who did he say he was? He tells them to their face, your father Abraham enjoyed to see my day, and he saw it. And they're looking at him going, I don't know what he's smoking, but he's thinking he saw Abraham. Uh, and then he, then he ramps it up and says, oh, um, and before Abraham was, I am. He's the I am. And he uses the same terminology that Moses heard from God himself in Exodus 3, 14, and 15, when God's, uh, God tells him, oh, you need a name to tell the Israelites who released them from slavery? Give them the name of the I am. And so who is it that you know as a Christian? You have the privilege of knowing the I am of all time. Talk about a privilege. And that he wants to know you. That's amazing. And that he would leave the glory of heaven to bear your sin, my sin on the cross, so that at the moment of faith, when you are forgiven, you could have an awesome relationship with him. Talk about amazing. This is Jesus. He's been from the beginning. Colossians chapter 2, Paul, verse 8, Paul says this about Christ. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy, bad philosophy, an empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him, in Jesus, all of the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Did you get that? Who is Jesus? The fullness of deity is him. He's perfect man, perfect God in the flesh, the God man. He, he is the great I am. So you must understand who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And when you, you realize that when you came to him in faith, uh, you weren't just coming to Jesus, I would hope not, that he, he's, just, he's a great guru. No, no, he's the God man. Uh, you didn't come to him just because he's a great prophet in the line of prophets. No, he's the prophet. Uh, you didn't come to him because he was just a great reformer within Judaism. Wow, he really showed the Pharisees how to think about Judaism. No, no. He, he was the Lord of glory who came. And he tells two times, you know him who was from the beginning. I mean, who created all things. Because at the very beginning, uh, you figured it out. Because I asked my mom when I was a little kid. I don't know if I was eight years old. Because you, all your kids ask you this question. Who made God? You're thinking, i got to call the church. <laughs> what in the world? Uh, uh, nobody made God. Hmm? Because in the world that we live in, every effect has a what? Cause. Uh, and no, 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 it's just impossible uh, that every, every effect has a cause. 
But uh, in the laws of philosophy, the law of in infinite regress says you cannot have cause-effect go in reverse to infinity because there has to be something to create the first effect, right? But since we live in a world stuck in causation, there has to be someone greater than the cause-effect who's not caused. Who's uncaused? God, by definition. That's Jesus, the creator. It says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for by uh, him, Jesus, all things were created both in the heavens and on the earth, things you can see, things you can't see, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. These are all uh, uh, Greek terms for a demonic and, and angelic powers. Uh, all things have been created by him and for him. The things you can see and the things you cannot see, he created all of them by the word of his mouth. He spoke and it was. And he wants to have a relationship with you. How could you ever want to walk away from him? I mean, that's just the thing. He's giving you that amazing at that amazing knowledge. The second thing that he's given you uh, is knowledge about his provision. So special knowledge about his person. Who is he? He's the God-man. And trust me, that changes everything. That, that means no other religion is correct. Only, well, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the truth. The second thing he gives you is uh, knowledge of his provision. Uh, it, it tells us here in this passage, uh, he tells us twice, that the young man... Uh, have overcome the evil one. So it doesn't take a PhD in a, in a Bible study uh, exposition to understand who the evil one is. Who is the evil one? There's only one of them. Devil. Just one of his names. He has other names, but here he's calling him uh, the evil one. Why? Because he wants to take you away from the intimate walk with God and pervert you so that you adopt the, an evil lifestyle and it trashes your intimacy with Christ. But he tells you, you have overcome at, at times in your life the devil. How'd you do that? Well, he tells you in the last verse here, verse 14, he says, uh, you're strong. Why? Because the word of God abides in you. Notice the present tense. The word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. What is the last thing the devil wants to hear coming out of your mouth? The word of God. What did Jesus do in the wilderness when he's tempted by the devil? In, in Matthew chapter four, three times he quotes from the Torah. Does he not? He quotes the Torah and puts the devil down and the devil has nothing to say. I mean, when's the last time you were tempted, like Carly was, to do different things based on false worldviews, and instead of giving in to said worldview, you just quoted scripture to it? Because where's the origin of that particular temptation? The devil. And so he says, you have overcome the devil. Why? Because you've abided in the word of God. So here's a good reason why a Christian who's in intimate with Christ is walking closely with God, because they're in this book. And because they're in this book, the book becomes in them, and they begin to live what the Bible says. So how important is it for you to be reading this? Very important. Uh, because it is feeding your soul and it's giving you truth for life. So when your way is dark and you don't know which way you should go, a uh, psalmist uh, tells us in Psalm 119, 105, that the word is a lamp unto my feet. Should I move here? Should I marry him? Should I date her? Should I do this? Should I do that? Should I have him as a business partner? Etc. How do I know when my way is dark which way to go? I read the word of God and I get wisdom and insight for which way to go. What, by the way, what should our nation be doing right now? appealing to the Word of God. They don't need to form another committee to study this and that. No, they need to open the Word of God and say, God, what would you want us to do? Because when you come to God and repent and turn to Him, He will give wisdom to whoever you are. And so uh, if you are having people uh, surrounding you like uh, Carly did years ago, uh, you need to get back more into the Word of God, less out of the Word of God, because as it abides in you, uh, it, it feeds your soul. I do not know how many times I've got up in the morning, read the Scriptures, and thought to myself, what has that story got to do with my life? 
And then that day, I got a phone call. Somebody came to my office. Something happened. And all of a sudden, what I read at 530 in the morning just coincided with what I read or what I was facing that day. And it's a perfect alignment. And it's like, wow, that's amazing. That's God. Uh, where do you get strength for overcoming the devil? Uh, from the word of God. So you should be in it. And so he tells these believers, don't forget to spend time in the scriptures. That's a gift God has given you. Open it and read it. Lastly, he says you have the gift of revelation. Well, what kind of revelation? Revelation that tells you what to do and what not to do. So notice what he says. He's going to give you a command in verse 15. It's a gift. The gift is a revelation of which way to go. Uh, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. And if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So I want to make a couple observations, grammatical uh, observations about this point. So there's two ways to say no in Greek. Yeah, you can uh, use a, the negative particle coupled with an aorist or a past tense verb. And that means don't even begin to think of doing this. You do this with your children. If you have children, yeah. don't even think of denting my car when you take it out, right? I'm just saying, don't park close, park away, hike in, etc. I mean, whatever it is you tell them, don't even think about disobeying, right? Uh, that's not what he uses here. He uses a present, the negative particle um, with, a, with a present tense verb, which means stop doing this. Okay, who's he talking to? Who's his audience? Christians. What's he telling them? Stop copying the world. Wow. Stop copying the world. Is it possible for a Christian to mimic the world? Oh, yeah. Now, there, there's more in this than this. This is, this is amazing stuff. This is forbid, forbidding an action in, in progress. So he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, seven churches, and he's telling them, as I look in your churches, I see a lot of infiltration by false worldviews, and if we do a taxonomy of breaking down what those worldviews are teaching you, they're totally contrary to their faith. They're telling you that Jesus wasn't really the God-man. He only had the, the God's spirit deluded descend on him at his baptism. And right before his crucifixion, that God's spirit left him and this body died, but it wasn't the God-man. No. No, he says, you get away from worldly thinking and get back into fellowship with God. He says, if anyone loves the world, speaking to Christians, the, world, the love of the Father is not in him. So some people will read that and go, see right there? He's telling you it's not a Christian. Or they'll say, see, they lost their salvation. Well, number one, you can't lose your salvation. And there's a whole bunch of texts to support that point because he just told you uh, in verse 12, you have been forgiven, right? And by the way, I forgot to tell you, that's a perfect tense in Greek, which means it's a past act with an abiding result. So he even uses a tense to underscore you can't lose your salvation. So over here, he's talking about intimacy. Can you lose your intimacy with Jesus? Yeah, like Carly did. So what, happens, what does he mean that the love of the Father is not in you? Well, if you're not loving the Father because you're walking into false things, he still loves you, but, but, but that intimate relationship's not there. So that loving relationship you had is not there. You have children? And if they walk away... And, and they live a contrary life like my little sister did many years ago uh, and defamed the family by, by their lifestyle as a Christian. Um, sad, went on for years and years before she repented. But did my father love her? Yes. But was there a love in that relationship as they navigated? Well, it, it, was, it was difficult. So it looked like the love of the father was not in her because of what she was doing. So where are you at in your walk with God? Do you love in the world? Well, you're sitting there thinking, well, whoa, 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 what does that mean? I need specifics. Okay, good. Verse 16. <laughs> I know how you think at this point. 
What does he tell you? For uh, the, all that is in the world, he's going to list a couple of things. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, it's from the world. And the world is passing away and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. He says there's three things of the world you need to constantly pay attention to. Constantly. Three things. Um, number one, lust of the flesh. So what the world does uh, is the world comes to the Christian uh, and they want to offer you that which is seems legitimate, but it's illegitimate. You hear me? They're gonna, it's going to seem legitimate, but it's illegitimate. So lust of the flesh. Uh, the word lust of the flesh, the terminology in the Greek text, first and foremost, points to illicit sexuality. So sex outside of marriage. Sex not designed by God. What does my culture say? Men have babies. Huh? No, that's what they say. They do. And we're like, uh, no, 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 they don't. Uh, no, yeah, they do. And if, if you don't abide by your viewpoint, then we're going to, we're going to har harass you because you're being hateful, etc. That, that type of thing. Illicit sexuality. It's some kind of sexuality not condoned by God, but our world wants us to embrace it. And he says, you must constantly pay attention. It's a lust. It's a desire of something that you want. So if the object is forbidden by God, you shouldn't pursue it because to pursue it is to commit sin. The other thing is... Uh, uh, lust of the flesh is, is not only a, a statement about sexuality, uh, which, and, and we know from Jesus, if, if, if a man lusts after another woman who's not his wife, uh, even though he doesn't commit the act of adultery, in his heart he already committed it. Because he's looking at somebody other than his wife going, she looks good. She's nicer than my wife, etc. Jesus said, you just committed adultery. Because the, the object of forbidden desire, just the desiring it is sin. Um, but it moves, it, it, it refers to more than that. Uh, the lust of the flesh is wanting something that's illegitimate. So that can be a wide variety of things. So, uh, is food good? Softball question. Is, is food good? Yes. Yeah. Is a whole lot of food good? No. Well, if you're 18, <laughs> yeah, whole lot of food, but well, probably not good. So is uh, one Girl Scout cookie good? No. Yeah. yeah. How about a whole sleeve? <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because you know, if you break the sleeve, the cellophane, zzz, there went a sleeve. Thinking, you're, thinking to yourself, well, there's only one more sleeve. And the boxes, they're not that big. So you break open the second sleeve. Psst, it's gone. And you had them in the fridge, so they're nice and cool. And You know what I'm talking about? I speak from experience here. That's why I don't do this anymore. It's, it's lust. You're standing in front of the freezer, staring at the boxes in there. So uh, the devil comes and says, I'm going to give you something. It's illegitimate, but it's going to look legitimate. I just have one. Just one. So you're going out for drinks with friends. One glass of wine is okay. I don't drink personally. I don't like it. It puts me to sleep. Uh, and I think it all tastes the same, personally. I've tried different ones, and it all tastes the same. I know there's kind of sewers here. Want to try to convert me. Not happening. <laughs> but the thing is, like, if you have one glass, okay, I can live with that. If we're at dinner and you have five glasses, I have issues. And after, like, four or five glasses, then I need a screwdriver. I need a little vodka, too. Could I have this? I'm sitting there as a pastor going... What church you go to? What are you doing? Because the lust is, I got to have one more. And wait, it's not, it's not that big of a deal. One more. It's the lust of the flesh. So you have to ask yourself, are there any cravings that I'm giving into right now that control me? Control me. I mean, one of my friends, uh, he was a, a gym coach out in California. His wife hid, hid all kinds of pastries all over their house and ate them all day long. No, I'm not kidding you. And, and, she, and he, she told him to his face, I don't do that anymore. And he kept finding Twinkies, Hostess cupcakes, Hostess pies. 
everywhere. The problem was lust of the what? Flesh. We laugh, but we understand how, oh, the doctor gave you painkillers to manage this pain, and all of a sudden, well, I'm using that all the time now, see? Uh, uh, the lust of the eyes, that's craving something that uh, it's forbidden for you, it's out of bounds for you, but you want it anyway. Lust of the eyes. Uh, this could be, again, uh, this is coveting. The word here is the word to covet. This could be another man's wife. Uh, another, you know, it could be any situation like that. Uh, it could be uh, craving somebody of the same sex because you're desiring something verboten that God did not permit. Uh, what's our culture say? Oh, love anything and everything. everything. God is not so open. Um, it's loving something that, uh, that's not good for me. Uh, it, it's the car that's way beyond your pay grade. Uh, Liz and I went to a, house, to a couple's house one night when we were first uh, a new, new pastor, and they wanted to meet the new pastor, so I was a youth pastor, so I went to their house, and they, they, were, they didn't have any money like we did, and, I, and I'm looking at the house, they have these pictures of you know, Corvettes and huge mansions all over the living room with all these massive posters, and I asked the guy, hey, what's up with the artwork? I mean, this is not normal, uh, and he said, uh, hey, those, we, uh, those, those are what we want to eventually buy. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess you're dreaming big. And then we found out after dinner that they were Amway people. They didn't want to get to know us. They wanted us to buy their product. And then I started connecting all the dots. Oh, you want us to buy your product so you can eventually buy a Corvette. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he, he, I walked out of thinking, man, he's, he's wanting all the wrong things. Because you get that great car, and you're going to have to fix it. It's going to rust. Things are going to happen to it, etc. Because one of my friends, friends bought a Corvette, said it. It cost him so much money to maintain it, he finally got rid of it. Now, not that the car is inherently bad, but the one he got was a lemon. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but I'm just saying, I mean, even if you get all those things, does it really matter? This is the lust of the eyes. The boastful pride, boastful pride of life. That is, well, I went to Yale. Where are you going? Well, hey, I'm at a JC right now. I mean, I'm working things out. Uh, you know, at, you know I'm, I'm eventually going to get to a bigger school. But, uh, you know, I just, hey, this is just where I'm at right now. Yeah, but hey, but I went to Yale. Does it really matter where you went to school? No. no. Does it matter? Does it matter? And if you're in a JC and that's where you're at, praise God. You're in school getting educated. And sometimes people that went to the JC uh, think more logically and clearly than the guy that went to Yale. But it, it's nothing against Yale if you went there. My point is, it's the boastful pride of life. Look at my degrees, look at my house, look at my car, look at what I'm worth, look at who I'm with, look at who I know. I mean, doesn't the list, it's endless. Boastful pride of life. How much comes out of your mouth each day that's about that kind of stuff? Look at me. What does John say? Pay attention to three things. Your flesh, what is it craving? Number two, what are your eyes looking at you shouldn't be looking at and wanting? And number three, are you cocky and boastful about who you are and what you have? Those are all evil things. He says they're from the world. And he says this whole world is transitory and it's passing away. Why hang on to the stuff of the world which will not even matter in glory? What will matter? Well, he tells you what matters. What matters is the one who does the will of God and abides forever. Translated, what matters is the person who's obedient to Christ. That's what matters. Because when you stand before him, that's going to be the only thing that's going to matter. He won't care about the house, the cars, the wife, the whatever, the degrees. What's he going to care about? Did you know me? And did you follow me closely? Because what does he tell you? He tells you in Matthew 25, he, what he's going to tell those who walked closely with him. Well done, good and faithful servant. 
I don't know about you. That's all I want to hear from him. Well done, Marty. You were faithful to the end. Is that you? Well, then you got to maintain your fellowship with him on these three things. It's a great weekend, is it not? It's about sacrifice. And these things are about sacrificing. Our flesh pulls us this way, and we sacrifice to live a close, intimate walk with Jesus. And that's where there's great joy and peace. May you have a great weekend. And it's 10.03. It's slightly miraculous, but close. Let's pray. <laughs> God bless us as we attempt uh, to be obedient unto you as your children. Uh, for those who uh, have drifted uh, from their walk and in intimacy, bring them back to show them that they're forgiven. Uh, do great things in their life to free them from their darkness uh, and restore them as you only can as the Father. Uh, and just thank you for pointing out our tendencies and propensities. Help us to have victory over them as, as we stay close to you. And for those who don't know you, uh, reveal yourself in such a profound way that they will kneel before you in faith this day. In Jesus' name, amen.